All right, Zig coming in on the top 10 of the show. We have Mike Baguetta, guitarist, songwriter extraordinaire. And this one, this one I've been very excited about because I, I, you know, you, I get to do all this cool research into these people I talk with, but not often do I see them and find them on my own and get to see what they're doing and then dive in and talk with them. But that was the case with Mike. I saw Mike play with MSSV at the Beachland Tavern um, a few months ago, and this is a really cool chance to get to talk with him with his new record that he has coming out with kind of the same lineup. Mike has a, a new record coming out called Every When We Go. It's his second studio album with the avant-garde dream team featuring um, himself, Jim Keltner on drums, and bassist Mike Watt. And if you listened to this show before, you know how much Watt is an important um, musical presence for myself and my band in our musical journey and to dive into anyone's uh, perception who gets to work with him is always super intriguing and inspiring for uh, for myself and in coda and and this was a this this conversation was a very inspirational one i caught i caught mike um Begetta, who we're talking to on his way to nashville as he was driving so during this conversation you are going to hear some car sounds i th- I thought we'd be able to edit most of them out, but it seems like a lot of them stuck. Um, it, it doesn't distract from what he's saying, but it does. It, there is a tone. Also, um, Mike Watt and Mike Pagetta do a lot of different projects together, and um, sometimes when, during this conversation, you they, they get muddled. All right. But the one that is coming out is Every When We Go, and we're going to listen to the first track off that record, Every When We Go, off Every When We Go.
Mike Baguetta, Everyone We Go, off Everyone We Go. Very lyrical song and a very unique uh, original guitarist in their voice. What's so cool about his playing is it's in the pocket, it's singable, but then it's out of this world. And the more you listen to his music, the more you hear how he intertwines it and makes it so seamless. It's available now on all streaming platforms and wherever you get your music, dive into it. A lot of Watt in it too. And... It, it, no one, I don't, I don't think there's a better guitarist to to sit in with Watt, right? For as original as that guy is, Mike's right there with him. Anywho, if you're new to the show, I play in a band called C Level. There's C Level. Um, we have some cool stuff coming up, um, but I just wanted to clarify: in Watt, in any of his projects, and anyone who's kind of circled around Watt has meant a lot to us. Um, so if you're into, into any of this, you might dig some of our stuff as well. If you can like, rate, review, subscribe to the podcast on one of the podcast platforms, it helps me keep talking to cool, insightful guests like Mike Baguetta and sharing that insight with you. So without further ado, here's me talking to Mike as he's driving to Nashville. But every when we go with that, cause like I saw you guys, I saw MSV, um, at the, the Cleveland, uh, at the Beachland Ballroom. When you guys came oh through. yeah great that was a fun show right on cool yeah thanks for coming oh it was an incredible night um i was like because we uh we were we were like you know how that stage is set up when there's that like um that little ledge to the left stage left right yep. me and my bass player were right there watching you guys the whole time on the rail oh cool. awesome um but so kind of jumping in, the first record I heard from you was uh, the Wallflowers uh, uh, um, session you did with Mike when I was looking into Mike's whole career. And, uh, and that's when I became aware of, of, of your music. And you had the, this take on Blue Velvet, right? And I was just like, I went to Cleveland State to study jazz. So like learning like uh, um, chord melodies was like kind of on my mind at that time. And like... So that that was like the perfect run in the middle of try to like, not run in the middle, the perfect run into like right uh, uh, example of something that's not just a straight jazz standard, but approached in a chord melody way. Did you uh, did you grow up like with jazz or jazz guitar? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, you know my dad, he plays guitar. Yeah. And, and uh, some of the first guitar lessons I got were from him, and his taste. Uh, kind of runs from sort of classic jazz to um, Chet Atkins style country music and 
course, there was a lot of sort of, I guess, for lack of a better term, kind of 80s soft pop music around the house when I was growing up. So I was exposed to a lot of different kinds of music is the point. But uh, jazz and kind of guitar instrumental music for sure was uh, a big thing that my, my ears were tuned into early on. Mm. That's it's interesting with the Chet Atkins because you use a lot of open string runs, like, which is really cool, and that fits really nice in that. But that's that's a Chet thing. That's a so like, uh, growing up around that like, because most guitarists I feel come from the opposite, the less melodic kind of more like riffage like feel kind of approach. Like you know what I mean not as not as like a uh, harmonic as play uh, of a, a playing idea as like chord melodies or like or jazz like kind of lends itself to or that makes that guitar style stick out so like um kind of growing up with that do you like i, I guess my question is like is it on like I, when i the first track on this record i know this is a long stringed question i'm sorry um, no no i mean keep going <laughs> um is it really like it's this it's a melody. It's a beautiful song by itself. And now, like, when you approach coming up with, like, or when you approach improv, are you thinking along the lines of something more lyrical coming from that background? Or, like, is it more of just a feel? Well, uh, th I think that's a great question, especially um, not to get too into, like, guitar land, but I think it's a really good question to deal with as a guitarist um, because, you know, that instrument is set up in a way just kind of physically and visually that you can think about a shape in your fingers in, in some way, whether it's a single note thing or, or a harmonic thing. You can think about a shape and you can move it around and you can think about it visually, but, uh, you know, and that's cool. But I think if you get stuck only doing that, you kind of miss out on a lot of opportunities for musical invention. Um, and so it is something that I think about uh, because I definitely came up thinking about shape visual guitar shape fingerings uh but i did kind of realize that i felt like limited like oh i'm gonna play in this spot of the guitar neck now i'm gonna go to this spot of the guitar neck and but when you listen to a great singer you know or just like you said like listening to a great song that has a melodic thing it goes beyond that it kind of breaks the boundaries and the limitations of the physical instrument so that was something that was really interesting to me. Like, how can I sing through the guitar? How can I kind of vocalize through this instrument and, and have a really natural feel without being bound by it? So, you know, yeah, I think that's real. That is a good question for a guitarist to think about. Um, and it is definitely something I think about now, how I approach either composition or improvisation. It depends on the goal of either of those things. Uh, I tend to, enjoy thinking really melodically but i also don't want to get stuck playing things that are like uh too pretty i guess for a right. lack of a better term you know like i kind of like to put some some grease and some trash in there a little bit you know <laughs> yeah make it a little more human you know so sometimes the goal is not to be melodic sometimes the goal is to create a texture or a mood by any means necessary uh so i i'll use anything at my disposal whether it be trying to be melodic outside of the bounds of the instrument or trying to use the bounds of the instrument to create something a little more gnarly. Um, you know, and, and your observation, just to go back a second, you talked about the open string thing on guitar. Like, 
yeah, there is there is a lot of Chet Atkins open strings runs, and I'm sure subliminally that was in my mind, yes. But for me, uh, I really started thinking about how to use open strings mixed with uh, finger notes on the guitar through kind of an article. Well, I guess it was a chapter of a book. There's a composer named John Zorn, hmm. and he has a, a whole series of books called Arcana, A-R-C-A-N-A. And it's, I think there's like eight or nine volumes now, but I, I got the first volume when it came out. And basically the idea is it's like a, each chapter of this book is a, written by a musician about something musical, you know, whether it's like a lesson on the instrument or just something from their history. They're really, really cool books. Uh, but in the first volume, uh, another guitarist named Bill Frizzell, he wrote a chapter about mixing open strings with fingered notes on the guitar to kind of get this like harp-like effect. And uh, it was laid out so clearly that you could learn from it like really easily that, that it had a lot to do with how I approached it. You know, because it's, it's something I always heard, you know, Lenny Bro is another great guitar player who did a lot of that mixing open strings and fingered notes. And, you know, I mean, there's a long list of people who do it. But for me, that article that Bill wrote or that chapter that Bill wrote in the first Arcana book it just like laid it all so bare and clear that it was like, oh, this is what's happening and it's really easily understood and now I can, you know, kind of work with it. So that was where I came came to it from that. There's so many different ways to get to the same kind of place, I think, but right. it's important it's important to keep it straight, at least in my own head for myself. No, I totally agree with that. And that's I think part of why it stuck out to me is that's something like I've been working on. I've been running scales like trying oh, to do yeah. <laughs> doing the open string version of it like an A scale or like there's some there's keys on the guitar that work great, you know, like A or D or G, like especially E, you can do a lot of those and like trying to get that into playing and like so especially seeing you guys at the Beachland, I was like you're doing jazz shit with that. I'm like that's cool. Like an outside shit with that. I was like I can't even get like <laughs> I'm still working on getting my major. Yeah, the thing you say about guitar keys, E, A, and D, etc. Like, okay, yeah, that's another very true thing, of course. But you know, if you if you're in standard tuning on guitar, mm -hmm. um, your open strings, you have the notes like E, A, D, G, B, and E, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And so, yeah, obviously you go E, E chord, E scale, A scale. But what's really interesting is when you start to think about keys that are not like that, like how do, which notes can you mix in like a B flat major scale, right? You have the A, that's a major seven. You have the D, that's a third. You have the G, that's a six. You have the E, that's the sharp four. So you still have these access to these notes in these kind of like non-guitar, non-traditional guitar keys, you know, horn keys or whatever. And that's really interesting when you get into mixing them with that because you're not thinking about the open string as a kind of a root note you're thinking yeah. about it more as a color note mm. right so so again there you've broken that limitation that guitar limitation of like okay i can only use these in e a and d no you can use them in any key you just have to keep track of where they are and where to put them that's badass because yeah then you get that sharp four sound and that's super jazzy that lydian uh, uh yeah lydian um I don't, are you a mode guy do you think modes a lot or is that just kind of like another limitation um, I never really, I mean, yeah, I never really got modes. I just think of, they're all like scales, right? you know, like, yeah, you have the Lydian mode, but if you're going to think about playing in a Lydian mode, to me, it's just the same as thinking about using a different scale. So 
so yeah, I learned them all, and but I never really, I never really got the idea of thinking of them as modes. I just thought of them all as like other scales. Hmm. So, so yes and no. Okay. Well, no, that but, make, that makes sense. But you again, know. that idea of like thinking about modes or thinking about something like that when you play, um, I think it's more important to really learn it so that you don't have to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, definitely agree with that. It's kind of like the um, the whole Wootenism on like it's language. You don't really think about the words; you're just conveying the conversation. And, uh, right. You don't think about the letters that make up the words, but you you're versed in communicating, right? And, and that is the most important thing. Right. Right. Oh, that's awesome. I'm definitely gonna check out those books. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, you should. They're really cool. Like, because it's it's interesting too. Like, though there are all these kind of clear cut ways to understand a thing, and like. Everyone kind of comes, uh, bouncing off what you said, everyone kind of comes to these conclusions to their whatever makes sense with them, right? Like, they'll, like, uh, I've been diving into Victor Wooten's book, uh, The Music Lesson, and there's a lot of, like, like you know, it's not, it's theory, it's not fact, and, like, it that kind of sets the limitation of, like, or elim eliminates the limitation of, like, this is one thing, it can only be this. And, like, it's weird, like, how the individual reaches that clarity of thought like and like a, as a guitarist there's a lot of those kind of like standard things you got to do to be a good guitarist or like be able to fit in with the 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 bar band at first you know what i mean like there's a lot of like set kind of vocabulary that oh you can you can hang on this you can do a blues in this and like and which is all important and i'm not trying to um you know, downplay any of it that helps build the vocabulary for later. Um, but reaching that, like, kind of like bouncing back, what was that kind of moment that made that more clear to you? Like, with the melodic approach, where you're like not really thinking about it, but it just became a, a, a just doing, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think it's always kind of been there, okay. and I think. I think something what you said, like you got to learn to do this and that if you want to do this and that. Like, I, yeah, I think that's true, but I, I don't really know that it's that important anymore. Uh, I think if you want to, yeah, if you want to be in a bar band and you want to do covers and you want to play in the style of, well, well, yeah, sure, of course you got to learn to do that. But I think if you are interested in making your own music, I don't know that it's like a requisite that you have to be able to do all these other things anymore. Um, you know, for me, like, I don't think I'm like a great technical kind of guitar player. I mean, I can get around and do, do a few things, but I mean, I know people that'll play circles around me, you know, all day long and, and they do it so well and they sound so good doing it that it's really futile to kind of try to keep up with that, <laughs> you know, because I'm just, everybody has things that they do different i mean we have different personalities and we have different uh histories in our lives and we have different goals and ideally we have different musics that we want to make right. so the idea of trying to keep up with someone else or trying to do something as good or better than someone else that, that never really sat well with me and i think unfortunately it took me a long time to kind of figure out that that maybe wasn't a thing that i was supposed to chase uh and when i did start to think like, oh, you know what? I can just be myself and how I play and I can try to figure out what it is I'm hearing, like really, like honestly, not like what I think I want to be trying to hear 
because there's a big difference there that and i think it's confusing to a lot of people when you try to figure out what it is that you really are hearing mm. to express yourself i think you get a lot more freedom in what it is that you're trying to attain i think that's that's beautifully said because over like, over a dominant chord right there's so many right answers you know to to what scale or what what would work over that chord, right? But what do you want to convey and what is your uh, emotional intent with the options and everything you laid out? That's a, it's a hard thing to do. I guess it's, it's so much harder to trust your, your own judgment because you've grown up musically uh, accepting what others do as right or, you know, as like, that's going to sound good. Um, yeah, even that, even the premise though, like there's correct ways to play exactly. over a chord. I don't, I don't think that's even true. I mean, it it all depends on context. Like, if you're trying to sound like blank, okay, then maybe that's a true premise. There's certain ways that you can do this, like quote unquote, correctly. But generally, on a very general level, there is no correct way because that isn't what music is about. Right. You know, it doesn't yeah. matter. It really doesn't matter what you do over a chord. <laughs> that's what i think yeah the only thing that matters is if it matters to you yeah yeah oh, that's that's awesome like I, it's uh that's such a cool I'm just thing. saying you won't get fired from the gig for doing that but i you know i do think that that's true <laughs> yeah true true <laughs> but no I, I i totally agree with that and it I, I don't know it's it's such a you know such an interesting like mental loop you go through to get there and i think i think that's beautiful um and like with a when you're like i guess like so coming from like this kind of like melodic background already in this like uh like when i with certain modes of or not or certain expressions you do i hear a lot of like outside notes a lot of like like um melodies that are like i don't i don't i don't know if it's an atonal approach or if it's like a free jazz thing or whatever it doesn't matter what it is but it captures my ear like it, you'll go from this really cool melodic like approach to like i'm following this narrative and then like in certain spots it spaces out and i'm like i don't know where it's going for a while then it hits back home which is you know the goal of those spaced out things but like is that like some of the cats you're into is like some of these like guys that take these uh take like some coltrane stuff like taking it far out well you know, one of the first uh, albums I got that was really improvisation heavy was a John Coltrane record called Impressions. Nice, yeah. And um, and then after that, I got another record by Miles Davis called In a Silent Way. And if you know either of those records, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of space where there's a lot of tension created in the improvisations. And I think that had a lot of influence on me being able to feel that idea of tension and release in a in an improvisational group setting. Uh, and and that is something that I like to kind of do when I'm playing uh, with people. Well, even when I'm playing alone, I guess. But that idea that you have, you know, if you want to talk about playing on chords, like set Western harmony there's certain notes that create a lot more tension than others, depending on the chord. You know, this is where we can get into that idea of like 
the right notes or the wrong notes or whatever. If you wanted to say that, I, I wouldn't say that, but some people do. But, you know, that idea, like, you can play a certain note over a chord, and it's pretty unsettling to the Western ear. And that's cool, because then you can kind of take your audience along into some kind of interesting journey, right? Yeah. If you play, if you play the notes that are... Trying to be careful of my terminology here, but um, if you play the notes that are like commonly accepted in our culture to sound correct over a chord, then I feel like it's really easy for the music to kind of drift away into the background and do the wallpaper thing. But if if you want to get, grab someone's attention, at least just to kind of pull their ear back to the fact that something is happening, you can use that device of like maybe using a note that creates a little more tension against a certain harmony. And then once you have that attention built in, then you can kind of go down the path and, and lead them along this little listening journey, you know, and, and if you're, if you're playing with people that are also listening, ideally you are, you know, to what's going on, there's all sorts of different kind of, kind of um, things that they can do to work off of those ideas together. And then you have a whole band that's kind of interested in taking the listener down a, the path of a, of a kind of an interesting little adventure, you know? Uh, and again, that's interesting. That's what I want to do because there's so many ways to, to not do that. You know, there's so many ways to play kind of in an expected fashion you know, but I mean, what does it really do for anybody at the end of the day? So I don't know. I've had so many experiences listening to music live and on records and in film and wherever, where it's just really interesting to me. And I'm like so thankful that it brought me on this interesting little listening journey to something I wouldn't have experienced. And it's really had a profound change on me in a number of ways that I kind of feel like it's it's maybe not this big of a deal, to, but like, you know, it's a way of kind of giving back to humanity that like maybe I can try to do that and do that for someone else, you know, would be really cool. Right. Well, I think that that's amazing. Well, you're bringing attention to this kind of thing that like uh, it's it's in, well, on, that that may be seen as the wrong way to handle it. But like but it brings the attention to what's being right. And sometimes, you know, being quiet, like the opposite is what gets listeners involved like speaking quietly in a loud room might get you heard more than screaming on top of everybody um, yeah that's exactly the same idea you know yeah. you can, exactly you can do it with dynamics you know the tension and release or you can do it with harmonic choices the tension and release or or you know if you're singing you can do it with word choices too like what words are you saying that could create tension and release in the with the with the listener in the band you know i mean there's all kinds of ways to do it but you know, uh, Watt has a saying like a little, a little friction is good. You know, if you don't have friction when you're driving, then the tires don't hold on the road. <laughs> That's a solid Wattism. Um, what uh, another thing that I found interesting, and in, it was uh, this week that I, that really kind of stuck out to me is um, the kids I work with. Um, I have one group that wants to do a horror movie. Like they just want to make a scary music. And they love nice. just like slamming on the keyboard and just making the most like 
loud, obnoxious sound to like mess everyone's day up because everyone is like, it's too loud. But they have yeah. so much fun doing that. And that there's right. something so like internally just fun about just like <gasps> doing the thing and like and, and having these notes that stick out. And like, but what was interesting is after like a few minutes of slamming on some stuff and making, you know, just all the black keys while slamming on one white key, like just making one, one nonsense of thing. Like they found that I found that letting them do that for a while, they, they found ways to resolve it and like make it into something like this sounds scary. Doesn't it, Mr. Dave? <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, but there's something so innately um, compelling about that. Like, they they had no interest in learning the songs I, I that they told me they wanted to learn that day, and me finding a way to make it into an academic lesson that fits. They're like, no, I just want to slam on this. Um, just to kind of highlight your point, I think that's that's an um, something so like fun, I guess. <laughs> oh yeah, well I mean you know look, it's called playing music, right? Exactly. You play yeah. The music, and it's not that play can't be serious too but you know it, it's kind of that spirit of investigation you know like I, when I kind of try to write a tune or if I have to write songs or something or a project a lot of time that's what my practice is I'm just sort of investigating things musically and then eventually maybe something sticks out or I, I have a million little short recorded voice memos on my phone of like things that were kind of interesting that I played and that might get pieced together and or developed further into like a, a quote unquote composition. But, but really my practice time is just investigating sounds and playing around with stuff. And maybe eventually something, something clicks or it doesn't, but I've had that experience of, you know, trying to deal with music on that kind of level of just seeing what's going to happen. You know, I, I think that's, that's a really fun thing to do. Um, and I think maybe people can lose sight of that sometimes too, with the get wrapped up, like, oh, I got to do this. It's got to be like this. But, but, you know, remember when you got really excited first about music, you were just kind of trying stuff. That's kind of what I want to go back to. Well, it's also like the idea of like uh, practicing. So it's cool. it's cool that you let them do that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, it's also the idea of like practicing creativity. You know, there's yeah, so much yeah, time yeah. on technique and and uh, the learning all the bits so you can say the sentence when you need to. But just putting that time to, like, putz around and let uh, inspiration come come from the ether into to whatever. Is that, like... Oh, yeah. So, like, is that, do you, is that, like, a routine you do? Like, or is it when you just have time, you'll putz around with an idea until something comes for a project? Well, uh... Yeah, I mean, I, I do I do get to work on music a lot, which to me is, like I said, just kind of trying stuff out in different ways and making little recordings of stuff that I think might might be interesting. And then if there is like a, an actual like, uh, you know, real real life project on the horizon, like, oh, I have a recording session, I better come up with a couple of things that we can do or figure out how we're going to do this, then then yeah, I'll maybe I'll sit down a little more intently and go through some of the recordings and say, oh, this actually was really cool. And then I'll figure out what it was and I'll play it again and I'll just play that for a while. And maybe I'll say like, oh yeah, I actually added this other part 
So I'll record that. And then the next day I'll come back. I'll, I'll sort of focus on a thing. Like I'm going to work on this thing for a few days, see how much further I can develop this one thing. Um, whereas if I don't have that, I kind of end up coming up with a bunch of different things that are sort of shorter. Uh, so that's, it's not really a process obviously, but it's kind of how it's, how it's worked for me. But, but you know, like what isn't like, I'll tell you a story about, about this, about what you were saying. When I was in college, I went to music school. I went to, uh, Rutgers university, um, for, uh, music performance. And uh, I had a lot, a lot of great teachers there. Well, a number of which have passed away. Actually thinking back on it, it's a little weird, but. Uh, I had a lot of great teachers and I met a lot of good friends there who were also musicians. And the point being one day there was a record that came out when I was in college from uh, Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter. And it was a just a duo record. I think it was called One Plus One. It's a great record. So they were doing some touring and they were playing a concert down in Princeton, New Jersey at the McCarter Theater. So me and a few of my friends from music school, we went down there to see them. And uh, it was like one of the heaviest concerts I'd ever seen. I couldn't tell if they were improvising or if they were playing compositions or how much percentage of each. And that was that was a thing that I've kept with me to this day. That idea of like, are they are they improvising or is this? Did they memorize this? I like I like that feeling. You don't know. Um, kind of like when you wake up and you're there's that moment where you're like, was that a dream or did that really happen? I like that moment you know it's a weird moment in life um but so i was really into this concert and you know maybe it was a little abstract because there was like people walking out it was insane i couldn't believe like people were there for 20 minutes and then they just got up and they leave i was like so into this music um but it wasn't for everybody i guess so anyways after the concert me and the friends i was with in our in our brazen youth we tried to like go backstage and and meet these guys you know because they're like you know, they're these huge legends, you know? Right. And so I, I don't remember exactly how this happened, but I remember there was like security at the top of the stairs and somehow we like talked our way into letting, letting, let us go downstairs to find these guys, which, you know, a different time, I guess, but we went down and we're like wending our way through the labyrinth of like underground in this theater. And, and we find this door, kind of this dressing room door that's like cracked open with a light on it. We crack it open. And it's just like Herbie and Wayne just sitting in there rapping with each other. Like no one else is around. It's just the two of them. And I can just imagine what they're thinking. The door opens up and there's like the four or five of us. How, like, how did you get back here? They look surprised, but they were so, so totally cool and generous with their time. We went out into like some other bigger room and they sat there and they talked with us for like half an hour, I feel like. And we asked them all these questions about the music and, and they were like so, so generous and so cool to tell us all these things, like to just even like put up with us, you know, that, and they just played this like two hour concert that was really intense. Um, but one of the standout things to get back to the point was, you know, I think we asked Herbie, like, you know, how do we uh, write music or how do we write songs? He said, you know, just some basic kind of question. The upshot of it was that he said to us, like, don't forget that you have to live your lives you have to go out and have experiences. That's the most important thing. Because if you just sit in the practice room and you practice, okay, you can write a song, but what's your song going to be about? G major? You know, who cares? 
And so that was kind of like a really interesting thing, you know, um, that again, I, I think has been a big influence on me. So, so yeah, I don't know. I mean, people do things all different ways. They can sit down and write and work on writing, writing however they write. And it's for other people, certain things work. But for me, this is kind of recently, you know, for the past few years kind of been what's the way that method has been working for me. I don't overthink it. You know, I don't think like, okay, I've got to write a song that uses a 12 tone serial technique and I've got to make sure that I have this dynamic. I just kind of, you know, I do what I do and I am who I am and I make time to sort of just play around and investigate music. And then, you know, I make sure that I record stuff so I don't, because I'll forget it otherwise. And then I can go back and sort of just work on it again. And, and like I said, I, I don't really overthink it. Um, and maybe it sounds that way and maybe it doesn't, I don't know, but it's not really for me to say at that point. No, I definitely, I definitely, it, it, that sounds the most like realistic way to handle, you know, with as much as you do and as little time as there is to really sit and just like, you know, come up, you know, life's happening super quick. Gigs are coming, like right now you're on the road, you're going to the next show. Like, like, uh, there's a lot that you can miss if you just focus on trying to write, right. <laughs> like, and I think yeah. that, that's a beautiful, uh, beautiful moment. One that you're able to go back there and meet Herbie and like Wayne. Like that's that's incredible to, to hang out with both those guys like that. Man, um, me and my bass player, we went and saw um, uh, Herbie in 2019 at uh, with Kamazi Washington in Detroit, and um, he got, he got to shake his hand hanging from the stage. You know, we're just like, oh man, that was incredible. But did you did you bring up the idea that are those are you composing or like or how much was improv how much was composition did you ask him that? I don't think I knew how to put that into words at that point. Oh, it was okay. just sort of this. It was just this feeling of like inner confusion about not completely not having any frame of reference about what was going on, but but knowing that it was a really special feeling that they were able to give from doing it however they were doing it i didn't really i didn't really realize any of that till later um so i wouldn't have even known how to ask it you know it's interesting because that's kind of like the that whole idea of is this what happened or is this a dream it's that kind of whole like uh out of that's a, it's a, that's that note that's sticking out like is this in key is this out of key is this part of the melody is this composed is this improv this like lingering feeling for that brief moment where you're, it could be it's the shortener's uh, note of 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 music is this in the song is this out of the song is this you know like it's interesting that that's kind of a thing that really resonates with you and like uh that performance kind of brought it out or even just to put it in the context of enjoying that feeling is this a dream or not like there's because that is a very distinct moment that kind of brings to light both ends like this is a dream or this isn't a dream and like that's a really like interesting like feeling to like find inspiration in well uh you know what you're touching on now is kind of like the bigger picture for me is that it's all the same thing whether it's whether it's i don't know what's happening with the music if it's real or if it's not I don't know what's happening with this note, if it's the right one or not. I don't know, you know, what I'm saying to you right now, if it's the correct thing or not. <laughs> like it's all, it's all 
intertwined. It's all the same thing. And if music and art and life are all reflective of each other in different ways, then I think it should be all the same thing. So the bigger, the bigger picture is that you don't really have to worry about any of this because it just is. And that's, and that's that. So like, I, it's kind of metaphysical or whatever, but I mean, uh, ideally that's kind of what it is for me. Like it just all is because it is. No, I agree. Like this is the 110% the conversation I was hoping we would have. This is very cool. Perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's fascinating. Um, the kind of you know, like if you, if you try to control stuff too much, you you get you end up kind of damaging it. Yeah. Uh, like if you, you know, and I I found this out in various ways of my life because I've done it. Like I like learning the hard way, I guess, or whatever. But like if you try to. <laughs> If you try to work a song too much, you ruin it. You know, right. it, it turns into like a like a like an etude kind of thing, like a like a showpiece or whatever. It's and it loses the kind of quality that I want. Um, if you try to like work a conversation with too much too much with somebody in a direction, you know, you kind of come off sounding like you're trying to do that, or if you're trying to like work somebody in a relationship a certain way. It, you know, you can really, you can really over control things and just ruin stuff really easily. It's very, it's very fragile. All these things are very fragile. So, you know, the best way for things to happen is, I don't think it's too much of a cop out to say the best way for things to happen is to happen naturally. But of course you can have some influence in the way things go by just by, you know, whatever your attitude or your approach to it is. And I really like the idea of things kind of being able to become more of what they are, which I think in a way means that you have to get in the way less. Mm. It's really hard yeah. to do. You know? yeah. It's hard to do because I'm also like kind of a control freak about certain things sometimes, you know, um, but mostly about like logistical things so that things can go right so that you can get to the place where you can do the do the more important kind of work. But yeah, I, I don't know. No, setting the I stage mean, is important. These, these are not answers, you know. There's no answers, but it's just, that's kind of the things that I think about, you know. That I try to, I try to live up to them as best as I can. Right, right, and like I totally like, you know, setting the stage is important, so you can go up there and like let what's going to happen happen, and let it happen the best way it can. You like uh, putting the the plant in the pot with the right the, w without soil is not going to let that that plant really grow unless it's a crazy. Right, yeah. So like I totally you know, and in you know, with music in a way that's, you know certain certain rooms are gonna allow that, especially if there's improv and there's like a magic every night that happens just because these elements are together, you know there's got to be that kind of place where it happens. Um, so I to that totally makes sense to me. Um, that's awesome though. But in, in the degree, go back to like letting it happen and stepping out of the way is really hard to like, just the, that's such a, like, cause you put so much thought into setting that stage, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then like, Oh yeah. yeah we're, we're conditioned to think that we have to do a lot of active work to get a, an outcome that we think we want. But, but sometimes when you don't know what you're going to get, you get something greater than you, personally could have imagined you know and, and in fact i mean just it's in my mind right now we're talking about this new record everyone we go and 
the previous record that I got to do with uh, Jim and Jim Keltner and Mike Watt, Wall of Flowers that you mentioned, the conception for that record, Wall of Flowers, I mean, I came in with a stack of music. I thought we were going to do these 15 songs or whatever. We ended up doing two of them. And then we ended up improvising for like a few hours just to see what would happen. And we got, we got so much more music that was so much more honest and so much more real and important to that moment because we did that rather than me trying to drive these preconceived compositions into the session. You know, and, and it's not a choice everybody would make. A lot of people would be like, well, I wrote all this music. We've got to do all this music, you know, but for whatever reason, you know, I was like, well, yeah, let's just maybe let's just try to improvise. And we just did that for most of the session and got got a ton, ton more great music out of it, greater than anything I would have written ever. You know, and, and the same thing and everyone we go, we did the same kind of thing. I brought in a couple pieces and then we improvised. And again, we come up we come up with this real honest music in the moment because we're listening to each other and because we're all contributing in a way that would never ever have happened if I tried to write it out. Right, right. Well, there's, yeah, there's no way to capture that. That's, or to pre-plan that. That's, that's incredible. Like, cause listening, uh, listening through, like, like I was saying with like Blue Velvet and those couple tunes, um, like it seems like that was a, a good balance of kind of like the composed part of the record than that improv part of the record. Um, and like, so when you got together with, with what and like was this kind of like how that how did that come about did you know mike did you know um like or was this just kind of reaching out to people to try to make that magic happen for those compositions that might have been uh all that came about with the help of my friend chris schlarp who's the producer of these records and he runs a studio called big ego studios in long beach california and he also runs the record label these run big ego records uh and so we had a, a mutual friend or two a number of years ago. And so we were in touch with each other. I don't even remember how we got in touch with each other, but, but we became friends pretty quickly. And at one point he said, Hey, I'm, I think I'm going to want to start a record label. Would you consider doing something for me? And I said, yeah, of course. Um, but I want to do something I've never done before if I'm going to do it. And that idea was actually, um, the idea I wanted to do was playing with people, trying to make music with people that I'd never met. Uh, and so, you know, to go a little further back, for whatever reason, like well into my 30s, I'd always thought like every every great album I'd heard, I just assumed like all those guys probably must have been like friends since childhood to be able to make music like that. You know, great bands. I was like, yeah, they've probably known each other forever, you know. And I didn't really, I knew like people would just call up other people they didn't know and make a record. But my sort of experience with that is that maybe those records I didn't think were like that astonishingly special, you know, um, kind of across the board when I'd hear something that I knew, and it was probably like bias in my head too some way. But if I knew like, oh yeah, this guy just called these guys to play with them, I'd be like, oh, yeah, it's good. But it's not like one of the great musical statements of all time. You know what I mean? Uh, for that to happen, just in my head, I was like, yeah, you've got to just only play with like your best friends forever to get that kind of stuff to happen, <laughs> you know? So I'd always had bands that were like, 
I wanted to know these, I wanted to know the people I was playing with for a while. So, you know, I try to hang out with people a bunch or do sessions or maybe do a bunch of little gigs or do a little tour. And then, and then I feel like, okay, now we can maybe try to record the music, you know, um, it wouldn't have made sense otherwise because we didn't know each other. So fast forward a little bit. Um, I was talking with uh, the great uh, David Torn, guitarist and composer and producer and engineer and, uh, you know, just all around uh, great dude. Um, he, he did. Yep. He mastered the Wall of Flowers one and he mastered this new one, Everyone We Go, uh, which I'm eternally grateful for his, his ears on this. Uh, but I was asking him about his, I think it's his first album for ECM called Cloud About Mercury. And that's a, it's a really heavy record. Uh, and I remember just assuming they were, he was like, he'd known these guys forever. So I was asking him like, well, you know, you must've known, uh, you know, Tony Levin for a while. Cause maybe, maybe they're like, we're from the same area or something. And, geographically but then like you know when did you meet uh bill bruford and, <laughs> and so then he was like oh i didn't know any of them before we recorded this record you know i think he like wrote bruford a letter or something asking him if he'd try to play music with him and and that like blew my mind i was like you mean to tell me that you hadn't known these guys for decades before you recorded the record i couldn't like wrap my <laughs> you know yeah and so it's planted a seed, you know, I was like, okay, so wait a minute, my whole premise is wrong. You can make great music with people you don't know, but what's, but how and why, you know? So I thought about that for a really long time. Maybe it was a, maybe it was a couple of years or something when Chris asked me if I'd make a record. So I said, yeah, I want to make a record for you, but I want to try to play with people I've never met before and see what I can get out of it to see, like, just to see if my theory is right or not even, you know? Um, and so that's what we did. So he said, who would you want to do it with? And I said, well, the only people I would want to do it with are, uh, Jim Keltner and Mike Watt, because I also thought it was kind of crazy that nobody had ever had them play together. You know, there's, there's aspects of both of their playing that are in a ways have a similar quality. I mean, they, you know, they play differently, of course, but there's, there's certain ways that they approach music, at least in my listening to countless projects that they're involved in on my side there's certain things about the way that they feel music that internally to me i thought were similar um and so uh, and so chris i chris schlarb i know he he had done some projects with mike so he knew how to get in touch with them and then i think uh, he also had some friends that knew jim and got in touch with them and then we found a date and he was able to set it all up uh, and we, the three of us had met for the, and Jim and Mike had never met each other. So the three of us all met in the studio for the first time on that, that day we recorded Wall of Flowers. Wow. That's so like, it, what, what would be interesting is after playing with a group of people that you've known forever and like developing that relationship and then meeting someone for the first time and just jumping in to make music with them. Um, do you think it was easier to almost kind of develop that type of deeper understanding of each other of each other via just playing music in that moment because it's more of like a heightened listening thing well i don't know if you can really know someone after a day of doing that but i think 
And what I learned is that a quality that a great musician has is the ability to listen while you're playing and allow what you're hearing to influence how you play. And I'm saying that slowly because I'm thinking about the best words to really explain that. A lot of people say like, yeah, you got to listen to each other and like react to that. But what does that really mean? You know, it's not, it doesn't, I don't think it really means a surface level thing. Like if you hear somebody do something on beat four, you also do something on beat four. I mean, you can, you can do that, but it's kind of like copycat thing. I don't know. But, but really it's about when you listen, when you really listen to the way someone's playing and then you drop that control of your own thing enough that you allow it to get into what you're doing. And I think that that was the biggest lesson I took away from that day is that those two guys were able to do that so quickly. And, and maybe it seemed comfortably, maybe it wasn't comfortable but for them, but it seemed like it was kind of second nature that you don't come in with a big preconceived notion. That puts a, yeah, that puts that, that lack of control. Um, and I think beautiful. I was kind of like yeah. mentally being, you know, I've been sort of trying to figure out what that is anyways. So on that day, it kind of just clicked for me also like, oh, yeah, I have been on the right track because I can feel these guys doing that so I can do it too. Like kind of going from that first session, when did like MSSV, like was that just like the next kind of getting together? Or, like, um, when did that idea, the next, like, kind of goal, was it just to meet up and make music again? Or was it to, like, kind of come yeah. in and make another record? So, uh, so my band, MSSV, uh, that, which stands for Main Steam Stop Valve, that came about uh, because the Wall of Flowers record came out with Jim on drums. And uh, I thought, you know, maybe it'd be fun to try to do some shows when the record comes out. And uh, so we were talking about it, and Jim, uh, he doesn't really want to travel too much. Mm. So I was like, okay, that's cool. So I remember still talking a lot, and he was still down to try to do some shows. And I was like, well, should we just, is it okay to use a different drummer? And maybe we make it a different prod project. Uh, and I think that was kind of, he was down to try that, and I thought maybe it would be cool. So uh, I thought about asking Stephen Hodges, if he would be willing to try to play some of this music and see what happens. Uh, and the idea for that was because another real big touchstone in my musical life was Watts' first opera called Contemplating the Engine Room. Right. And Hodge, Hodges plays drums on that record. Um, and of course, I, I don't. Stephen Hodges is playing from the Tom Waits records he's on. Mm. Uh, the David Lynch stuff that he did, um, and then, of course, contemplating the engine room. You know, he's in Mavis Staples' band for 12 or 13 years, I think. So, you know, obviously, like, we all know his playing, but but his playing on that record, and that record being so important to me, that was the reason that I reached out to ask him if he would do it. Uh, and, I, you know, he was, we had a great conversation on the phone, and he said he'd probably be into it. Uh, he was playing with Mavis Staples down in Chattanooga, and I was living in Knoxville at the time. So I drove down to Chattanooga so we could kind of hang out and we got lunch. And I think he just wanted to make sure I wasn't like an axe murderer or something, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
but uh, yeah, so we had a good time, and he agreed to do the tour for Wall of Flowers, which was a 10-day tour, coast to coast, 10 shows in 10 days from West Coast to East Coast. That was like, that was quite a trip. Um, and the shows were, were great. And I think about halfway through, you know, I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. It was just going to be, we'd do this tour and that would be that. And I think halfway through, Watt was, he asked me, he's like, so what are we going to call the band for next time? Yeah. Okay. And I, started think, I started thinking about it like, oh, okay. Yeah. Maybe this could be a thing because already on that tour, we had to separate it from the band on the record. So we were already doing some different music. Um, that was more personal to the fact that Hodge was playing drums with us now. So it's a different band. It's a different sound. It's a different vibe. And from that first tour, uh, we did a live album, which is out on Stripe Light Records. That's called Live Flowers, MSSV. Um, so we're playing live versions from some of the music of the Wall of Flowers record, but we're also doing other music that's particular to that formation of that band. You know, because when you change one part, you get a different thing. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. So you can't kind of pretend. And I never liked the idea of, like, somebody subbing for someone. Like, I, I, it's a reality. But, like, if I'm in a band and I'm subbing for someone, is the expectation really that I'm going to try to play like them? Because that's insane, you know? No. Um, so I never really even liked that word like it's just it's just a different thing now it doesn't have to be subbing you know and then when you have somebody like Stephen Hodges like he's you know he's not a sub for anybody he's like such a bad dude like yeah <laughs> to call him a sub is like uh, an insult in a way I guess I don't know uh it, to, to me in my mind so I never wanted it to feel that way for him either so it just in the end it was like yeah let's just make this a new band we play different we play this music differently but we now have our own music because it is its own different separate thing. So that that's the story about how that came out. So we just kept going with that. And that's, you know, the tributary off the, the river. Cause like when I, uh, main stop steam, main steam stop valve. Like there you go. that's such a, I know I my brain. I need, I need the coffee that didn't make exist. it easy for you. <laughs> but that name itself, like is such a watt, like, like a Watt thing, you know what I mean? Like that's like something I can hear, like uh, hear with well, the, name, within the Watt isms. Um, that name has a lot to has a lot to do with the record. I'll just set the record straight here. That name uh, has a lot to do with why I asked Hodges to be in the band. Also, yeah. you see the contemplating the engine room record. Uh, I'm not going to speak for Watt because it's out there in enough places. But my understanding that I know about it is, you know, that opera is written for uh, you know, D Boone and his, his dad. dad. Yeah. Uh, and kind of the whole emotional thing around that. Um, and a part of that is kind of based on this book called the Sam Pebbles. And, uh, there's a movie made out of it too, called, called the Sam Pebbles. Uh, and it's this crew, uh, give you this, the cliff notes version. It's this crew on a ship and, um, there's a lot of lessons learned on this ship, keeping the boat going, you know, stemming off mutiny, uh, learning about different cultures in the course of your work. That's all sort of the greater themes of this story. And that story, the Sand Pebbles had a lot to do with that Contemplating the Engine Room album also. So there's a there's a line in the movie, the Sand Pebbles, where um, I, I don't want to ruin it. You guys should read the book and, and watch the movie. But one of, one of the characters is talking about the main steam stop valve. 
as you know it is kind of the main component that's keeping the ship running and so because that album and that story meant a lot to me and when i was trying to figure out music a lot of light bulbs went off and that was also the reason that i asked hodge to do the band and then he was in the band and we were making a new thing and keeping that running watts suggested that name uh and it's a really good tie-in you know with with everything that it has to do with so it, it kind of stuck for that reason that's beautiful um and and I have the have the stickers from the show, and like you guys oh, have cool. the individual like labeled parts. Like you're the you're the the it looks like the turning mechanism on top, and like Watts like the plug in the bottom of it, and I, I think that Hodge was like the middle portion of it. Um, well, it always goes in alphabetical order by oh, our okay. last name. Um, <laughs> but yeah, we, so that's a diagram of the main steam stop valve. It's like for people who haven't seen our our logo, I guess it's like a scientific drawing of the main steam stop valve and the, the individual parts are labeled but with our names yeah gotcha i, d- I was going to ask was that more of like a uh, a point for each person musically in the band or was it just like but i guess if it's if it's alphabetical that makes more sense <laughs> yeah i think it didn't go beyond that yeah <laughs> yeah i will say i will say it probably wouldn't have mattered because i feel like the three voices in that band equally contribute to making up the whole of its sound well, of course, and it's it's it. Uh, I don't know much about the mechanism itself, right? But it's interesting that I'd imagine the main steam stop valve would stop the momentum of whatever if one of those parts was not there or one of those parts decided to move. So that's that's a really cool like uh, uh, us against everything or us all together uh, kind of uh, mentality within a name that maybe wasn't even thought of. Like yeah, my, my outlook would be three people together helping to carry something along rather than three people together against working them. against yeah. something. Although the valve would actually work in both ways. That's, it's a valve. <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, one, one tune from the, the previous record that stuck out to me was June 16th. And uh, part of that was from growing up listening to Double Nickels on the Dime. And like, one, I guess, I guess that's also your birthday? And two, like how you guys adapted the Minutemen version of that into this amazing, like 100% like going to like the guitar approaches we talked about before, like you version of what D Boone was playing. How did that like um, come up? Yeah, well, this is uh, this is on the first right. MSSV studio record um, called just called Main Steam Stop Bell. Uh, yeah, we do a version of Watts' song, June 16th. I asked him if we could do it. Uh, that was actually one of the first instrumental songs I learned when I was playing guitar. Yeah? Uh, yeah, and I I think I stumbled upon it solely because it was my birthday. <laughs> and I was like, oh, like some like stupid, like selfish kid, like, oh, yeah, somebody wrote a song for my birthday, <laughs> you know? Um, and then from there, I actually found the rest of the record and listened to the, the record, you know. Um, yeah. But so, uh, you know, of course, it's it's written about Bloomsday and, James, you know, James Joyce and some tenets of his work. And it's also uh, Watts' friend, Raymond Pettibone's birthday. So it has this whole other oh, connotation thing yeah. that, that, he, that he wrote it for, you know. But it just just pure, like, stupid happenstance. I was like, oh, that's also my birthday. I, I should learn this song. But of course, I really love, I love uh, that sort of mysterious quality of the song. It's kind of a, 
there's a lot of mystery in that song for me, you know, just from how the drum beats change to like the really, really, really sparse playing of D Boone and kind of what I consider to be the solo section. Um, you know, his playing is like, it's so profound because of all the stuff that he's not playing. Right. And that's another thing that it took me a really long time to understand the power in not doing something or not saying something. Um, but it, there's a lot of that in that song from my listening to it. And it just happened to be one of the first things I learned. So, uh, yeah, I just, I just thought, I just thought to ask Watt, I was like, what do you think if we try to do a version of this? Um, and, uh, he said, sure. But the way we changed it was all his idea, you know, like, let's slow it down. Let's kind of bring out a little more of the mystery of it. Mm. Let's exaggerate the dynamics between the louder parts and the quieter parts. Um, and the sort of what I thought of the solo section, we just extended that. And I tried to kind of, it's always a really heavy thing for me to play that because of course I'm always thinking about what, what D Boone played on it. And, I, and, you know, I'm not trying to be like reverential or referential even. Um, but I'm trying to sort of channel that idea of, you know, how powerful is it if I say less? Right. Um, but it's it's you know it's a heavy thing to play on that song for all those reasons. Um, but it, it is helpful that we did a really different version. I, th I think you do an amazing job of paying homage to the bits that were that make D Boone's part D Boone's part, but also putting yourself in it. And I think you carry that legacy of a minimal approach, like a minimalistic like musicality. Like, because when I, I did a couple listens through getting ready to talk with you of just listening to uh, the Minutemen version and your guys' version, and I think the MSSV version is so MSSV, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it makes sense that, like, had I not known this was a Minutemen tune, I would have just assumed this is something you guys would have wrote. Like, Well, that's that's really cool. I mean, that feels like a best-case scenario. Like, like while... I hope it's obvious that like I love D Boone's playing and like I've learned a lot from just listening to him over the years and like have a you know crap load of respect for him as a musician and an artist and a human. Uh, I'm not interested in paying homage to anybody, um, so it, it it puts me in a difficult place. <laughs> yeah. I I put myself in a difficult place is what I mean. Uh, you know, um, by doing by doing that song with them um, or for the three of us doing it together. Uh, but it's a good challenge, you know. It's a good challenge to try to strike that balance, so I'm, I'm happy to hear it came across. Um, one other thing I found I wanted to ask you about is, like, when I was talking with Steven um, at the end of uh, the Beachland set, and, um, like, because that, that tour was the build-off that 10-date tour. This was a, That was, like, a 30- or 40-date tour, right? Uh, 48 shows in 48 days. Holy shit. And, like, they come right out of, like, kind of the pandemic uh, shutdown of not touring. You know, like, that's, like, that's pretty, like, gun-ho. Watt, Watt was, like, we used to do more with the with the Black Flag. Like, this is nothing. I'm, like, it's still a lot, man. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he's got, he's got great stories. I mean, Black Flag, something he always talks about, which I which he definitely hit me to. I wasn't really aware. I mean, Black Flag really are the guys who built the touring circuit that we're still able to kind of use, you know, and yeah. set the example for how to do it in, in like, you know, an economic 
uh, way, you know, econo way, like to figure out how to get from point A to point B, what you have to do in between it, you know, and if you take days off, if you're not playing, you know, you're losing money, you're losing opportunities to share the music with people along the way. Right. So, uh, you know, I mean, those stories are really inspirational and, and like, sure, you know, we did 48 shows in 48 days, which a lot of people go like, oh, wow. But, you know, you just get in the momentum of it and, and you get to do what you love and you get to kind of work on music every night. The one thing I, not the one thing, but one of the things I really love about being able to do this band, Mainstream Stop Valve with those guys, is that we're consistently working on the music every every night. There's never, there's never a time where we're phoning it in. Or neither of us will allow any of the other one to kind of just go on autopilot. There's always a way to improve the music every night, you know. And, yeah. and it's not even—it's not even just thinking about like, oh yeah, I made a mistake in the song, so tonight I'm not going to make the mistake. It's about like, oh yeah, uh, you know, last night you did something that was kind of different that I thought was cool. Tonight, let's try to exaggerate that. You know, if it's a dynamic or maybe a new way to do something, like okay, let's keep that in there, but now let's try it like this. And you know we talk about that stuff in the in the in the van all the way on, on the road. We talk about it at sound check. We try to do it. We talk about it after the gig. You know, I mean, yeah. it's like you can't be in a luckier situation than to have bandmates that care that much about the music that they want to work on it every day while you're on tour for you know a month and a half. I mean, it's like such a such a total treat. That's um, so that that was gonna be my question. Was Stephen was like, yeah, we're gonna get in the van and we're gonna have these. We're gonna just start. It's we got the conversation all the way to the next about what we just did. I'm like, whoa! And then like as you guys wrapped up, like it seemed like plug like you because as we were leaving the venue, you three were in the van. I was like, oh shit, they're out of here. Um, so that was like I get the big question. I was one of those not the big question. One of the questions I was gonna ask was that what are those conversations? And so that's incredible. Like that's almost like how you just described it, it's almost like that kind of self-practice you were doing, but instead of, like, self-reflecting on little notes that you found interesting of uh, kind of just playing around, it's uh, or practicing creativity, it's like you're doing that with a group. And, like, the, that's so that's a really beautiful, like, inspiring way to keep, like, building off those ideas. So how much of that led into every win we go? Um, I don't think, I don't think that did. I think that was particular to MSSV and it definitely led into the new MSSV record that we recorded right after tour that'll come out next, next year at some, at some point. Um, but as far as everyone we go, that actually came about because, uh, I had, you know, we did all that improvisation from the wall of flowers session me this is me watt and jim kelton now uh and so what i did is i had all these other hours of improvised material and i went back and i edited it and i turned it into these compositions with some overdubs and i transcribed some parts we improvised and turned them into songs and i i think at one point i i sent it to or uh maybe chris schlarb had sent it to watt and jim and they were like okay what do you guys think about this and uh, this is sort of secondhand information, but I think Jim's response was something like, like, it sounds good. It sounds real good. But, you know, this is now at this point, this is from like two years ago. You know, if we really want to have more of it, why don't we just do it again? 
And so at that point, I think me and Watt were like, okay, yeah, well, if he's down to try to do some more, let's try to do some more. And so that was that was how Everyone We Go came about. I actually tried to have another record from the, not, not leftover, but the other improvised material that we didn't use. And in the end, it just kind of made more sense to just try to make something that was more current and kind of more pertinent to, you know, how, how we've all grown in three or four years from when we did that original recording. Got it. So that's where that's where I was getting the, the beams crossed. In a way, it was Jim's idea, which I think was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like the kind of um, the Joe Strummer bit where lyrics are like lettuce. You know what I mean? They only have a they're only good for so long before you need a new uh, new batch. Um, <laughs> you know, but the music uh, the musicality version of it. Um, and what's, what's yeah, it's true. Yeah, I think it makes sense. <laughs> but everything can be timeless, you know, even though I would like to think so. And like, well, yeah, yeah, I mean, but I mean, once it's there, it's there, you know. Um, I guess I kind of the idea on lyrics, do you like, um, Victor Wooten had this whole bit about like taking symbolic like things from like uh, speeches and using that in his playing. Do you like with some of these tunes because like every when we go like is a very lyrical melodic guitar song. Is do you think lyrically at all with this, or is it more just melodically? Uh, you know, there's two songs on this record. The title track, "Every When We Go," and there's another song at the end called "Measure of a Life." Those two songs, I kind of wrote them as if I was gonna maybe someday. I I never I wasn't going to. I probably won't. But I wrote them with the idea of they would be songs that I could write words to. But, but that I'm not going to write words to, you know, like with MSC, I've started, I've started singing with that band, much to the encouragement of my bandmates who I am really indebted to for that. Um, and for that, you know, I have kind of taken that approach of like, you know, how, how can words play off of the music and vice versa? And it's really opened up this whole new way of composing music that I'm like so grateful for, you know, sometimes you can kind of feel stuck in a rut with certain things and, it's almost like learning a new instrument. You know, you kind of like have a whole fresh perspective of how to write a song when you have words to fit into it somehow um, and how those things interact. So that that has been really, that in that way, the MSSV thing influenced this album because I feel like I'm getting better at writing songs around words or how to put, play with words in songs. And so that did kind of influence the way I wrote those two songs on Everywhere We Go, yeah. Okay, because that that struck me as like as very. I think I just ruined that now, telling you telling you that. So thanks. <laughs> I don't think it ruins it. I think it makes sense. I think because it's such a it's a singable melody and like and just even like the the intro to um uh, uh, measure of life. But you know what I mean like um th it comes off that way. Like as someone who like is very guitar focused musically, but also I, I write a lot of songs I sing to. Um, it's like two different two different headspaces, and like um, I, d I don't know if there's a right or wrong or a better or not better because going back to what we were saying, there really isn't. It's just a different different way, and like I I, th I think that melody was so perfectly like I don't want to put perfect in there either, but so well pronounced that it, to me it felt like it had lyrics to it, and that's why I was like maybe there is. So that's cool that potentially one day. But though probably not, there could be. <laughs> um, 
Uh, yeah, with, uh, probably one, not. one last question, because Mike, you've been very generous with your with your time, and I know uh, uh, driving is always fun when <laughs> when you got a lot to do. And um, uh, but oh no, actually talking to you is great. It, it helps. Uh, it helps with the drive for sure. I really appreciate your time. To kind of build off like what like working with Watt and like getting like vocal like uh, encouragement. What? Like, cause coming, Watt coming from like the whole punk ethos and like approach, like he's, I imagine has a lot of wisdom on how to just kind of express yourself and go at it. But what type of encouragement and what type of advice did he give that really made sense that encouraged you to approach the mic? Well, you know, yeah, you know, it wasn't so much like words of encouragement, like, you yeah, know, great yeah. job, kid. <laughs> it was, it's not like it's um, it's more the fact that it's like he doesn't see it as like totally insane for me to, to try to sing, you know. Like I, I'll tell you a story when I was um and, and Hodge too any any of them, but when I was young, you know I was taking some guitar lessons here and there, and I remember I had a guitar teacher. Uh, you know I was getting getting around on the instrument, and then I, I think one day I was like, hey, I'm learning this song. I want to been working at you know in my mind i'm like i've been working at it real hard and i want to share this with you because you're important to me and i remember i played the song and i was singing while i played and you know i'm sure it sounded terrible whatever it doesn't matter and i think at the end of it the, the you know the guy was like yeah yeah um that sounds good maybe uh maybe singing is not for you though <laughs> you know until like a little kid i mean i was probably i don't remember i was like 13 i wasn't that young but i was young enough where i was like oh okay yeah i'll never sing yeah. again and uh yeah and that sucks you know because like you love i love singers i love music that has sing you know like i mean i just love music and singing is a part of that right but i was always kind of like so it was funny that's that little instant kind of just beat me down and like and and forever i was like yeah i'm just a guitarist and i can't sing but in reality, like I've always loved hearing people do that. And I've always kind of just been secretly like, ah, I wish I could do that. But the reality is, is like, you can do that. Like everyone can do that. Of course, you know, I just had like bad luck at a really like crucial time where it affected me in a way that just kind of shut me down. And, and that's not a singular experience. The more people I tell this story to, the more people are like, oh yeah, that happened to me too. I had a really terrible teacher that told me that and like ruined my life, you know, which, which like, you know, it didn't ruin my life, but it did change. I mean, imagine like if I, if imagine if that day, like 30 years ago or whatever it was, some random person just decided to be like, you know what, you should keep working on that. Cause that, cause that sounds okay. Instead of saying, yeah, maybe don't do that ever again. Like just that one sentence, right. Imagine what, what would have changed. You know, it's, it's really, it's really intense. Um, and so, uh, so something happened with the MSSV over uh, lockdown. We were doing, uh, we put out a bunch of seven inches that were all recorded, you know, separately. Where we're all kind of in our little quarantine spots, just passing files around and, and writing new music. And uh, we got to do some stuff with some special guests with the band. And that was really, really uh, kind of cool. Uh, no, uh, no, Jay. Uh, Jay sat in with us on the first Wall of Flowers tour when we did we played the show in Northampton. He uh, we did a Stooges song for our encore every night, so he uh, sat in with us on that, and uh, that was a, a real, real fun uh, 
12 minutes of playing. Um, so when we were putting the record together, I, I asked him if we could um, use it, and he said yes. So that was also really generous of him. So he was very, very – you know, I, le- I learned all these lessons from people. It's, it's kind of interesting, like this, all these people I look up to that have – that are like just just like the generosity of them teaches me something that I'm like really grateful for. That I, I'm also grateful for the ability to notice it. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Because it's, it's not like I need people to come up to me and put their arm around me and say, "Here, let me give you some advice." You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. it's just it's just by being around people and watching how they do things that it has an influence on me in a really cool way. So, so that's another. You know, like Jay doesn't. He, what does he care if we put it on the record? He could say no or yes or whatever. But it was cool to that he would hear it and say like, "Yeah, it sounds good. If, go ahead." You know. Anyways, um, back to my story. Uh, oh yeah, no. So on those seven inches, uh, we did one with Nels Klein where I wrote a tune and Nels wrote a tune, and then we we both played on it all together. And then uh, there was another collab with uh, an artist named Scott Eicher who sent me four panels of drawings and each one was a different sort of alien looking character and so I made a little like in my mind I made a little storyline about this and I wrote I kind of scored my storyline in these four different pieces uh and then um, Petra Hayden joined us on uh, violin for some of those so that was kind of a collaboration with the Scott Iker the artist and Petra on uh, violin um also so those are the seven inches but uh anyways on some of those I ended up singing backup right like Watt had some lyrics and well, actually, the lyrics, the lyrics for the Scott Eicher album, I ended up writing and I didn't know it. That was that was actually the first instance of feeling confident with words. He uh, yeah. I asked Watt if he if he would like write some lyrics for these songs. I wrote the music for the four panels and I was like, I feel like these two maybe need some words to help the storyline if you want to write some lyrics. And he wrote back and he was like, well, tell me what it's about. So I wrote it, what it was about. And he just used those. He just, you know, he changed them a little bit and massaged them into the music. Uh, and I didn't really even notice, you know, he, he sent he sent it back when he cut the vocals. And I was like, I think those are my words. And I went back and I looked at it and I was like, oh, those are just my words. But, he, you know, he changed them a little bit and I saw what he did. And I was like, whoa, I just wrote lyrics to two songs. And I and I didn't think I could do that because somebody 20 years ago told me I couldn't do that. You know, so that was a huge that was boost number one. And then, um, you know, I had to do some backup vocals on on some of that together and then we'd also done some kind of just like some shout vocals on the the main steam stop valve track on the end of the main steam stop valve record and then i'd also done a little like vocalizing with this other guy uh reverend fred lane who actually that's that was the gig we did last night in memphis at goner fest um uh reverend fred lane is a really really interesting uh character to check out I, it's, in, it's like not this insane backstory like people thought he was dead like a serial killer in prison but he's just like some guy you know but anyways we <laughs> so had to do some vocalizing in that band also at the same time so at a certain point i was like you know what this is ridiculous like i am literally singing and i know now that i can write lyrics because you know this guy who i respect just used my words and he's not going to do that if they're terrible right and so then i asked those guys i was like look this happened to me you know that my uh Mike and Steven and SSS, MSSV, I told them what I'm telling you. And I was like, I think I want to, you know, write uh, half the songs next time with words. Is that cool? And they were like, yeah, you should totally do it. Go for yeah, it. Yeah. Like, okay, then I'll do that. And so that's what we did. So that, was, that last tour, the Haru tour, 48 shows in 48 days, 
I sang every night on tour and I'd never done that before. And then the next two days, days 49 and 50, we went in and we made the new record. Um, and so it's kind of a cool progression. That's that super way. cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, like, I feel like it would. So, to answer your question before I forget, um, <laughs> the, the encouragement, the most important encouragement a lot of time is not people like taking you aside saying, Hey, good job. You know, you should do this. You should do that. The encouragement comes in the way that people react to you and around you and what you're doing, you know, actions speak louder than words. Right. Right. So if you're able to kind of notice what happens, it has a real effect on people, you know, whether you decide to be encouraging in your actions or, or I think more profoundly actively discouraging in your actions, it can really, you know, really have an effect on people. So I think it's a cool thing to remember. I think that's well said. It's beautiful. And like, it's those are the things that prove it, you know. Um, that's it, yeah. it's one to kind of on your note to be able to notice it too, because I feel like a lot of those guys like Mike, and, um, and Jay Maskett, like a lot of these guys that kind of come from the punk ethos, like action is is how they how their statement, you know, and like it's one of those things you kind of read about or you hear about or you see about in like multiple facets, but to know that it's it's true and honest and that's really who they are and you see that within just being around them like that's to be able to notice it and like find it within yourself to resonate that way as well is really inspiring to hear you know because a lot of times you hear don't meet your heroes but i don't know i don't think those are the right heroes <laughs> um, yeah i don't know people get wrapped up in their own thing too much sometimes yeah that's true too and like um as a as someone to kind of like it has the the chance to influence people musically as they're growing um i always thought it's more important how you make someone feel than what you actually teach them because they're going to forget they're going to forget the lesson on quarter notes and how that relates to the mario theme or whatever the f whatever you know but how they felt about their ability to play it and accomplish it or just know whatever i think's the an amazing takeaway um but uh, Mike, this has been an awesome conversation, and like I'm, I'm leaving, or at least at this point right now, I'm super inspired. And uh, thank you so much Good. for your time, Good. my friend. It's been really fun. No, it's been really fun talking with you. Yeah, I learned a lot. <laughs> Likewise. Yo, Spike Spiegel here. You just listened to Zig at the Gig podcast. Keep riding the bebop. See you, Space Cowboy. Bang.